So we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. Anyone need more time? Any more Bibles? We good? All right, I'm going to pray and then we will, uh, we'll just jump right into it. Sound good? All right, let's pray. God, we just, um, <clears throat> just commit this time to you. Uh, just pray that, that worship would not end, but that we would rightly understand that this is the continuation of our worship of you, that our worship actually never stops. It just depends on who we're worshiping. We're always worshiping. And so I pray that um, we'd be focused on you, that, um, that, we would, um, that we would be guarded against condemnation, but that we would be open to conviction on this. Um, and God, not that we would make this about the tearing down of us, but that we would make this about the building up of you. And so just as we take a look at this passage, a critical passage, I just pray that um, you would turn words into a sermon, that you would turn um, that which I've diligently prepared, um, that you would be the one that turns that into truth in the heart of your children. And so um, only you can do that, Holy Spirit. And so um, I ask that now, um, that you would go to work on the hearts of your children, myself included, and uh, that we would see Jesus more highly and more lifted up and more uh, glorious than ever before. So Jesus, we love you, praise you, can't wait to see you again. It's in your name we pray, amen. As I thought about it, you, you, you kind of think that we're, we're really surrounded by measurement. <clears throat> All day we're surrounded by a spectrum of measurement, uh, scales of measurement, if you think about it. A lot of, a lot of you are in college right now, um, and you have a grading system, do you not? <clears throat> You have a grading system, which says what? <clears throat> the better you work, the what? The higher grade you get, right? Some of you are like still refusing to believe that. I'm sorry, it's true. Should I be going to class then? Yeah, you should be, right? So we've got a scaling system, right? There's better grades than others, right? If someone says, man, I was getting a D, but now I'm getting an A, are you like, oh, that's the same? You're not, right? You're like, you're doing better, aren't you, Right? Even with colleges, we have kind of this internal, though there's probably no objective way to actually say it, but if someone says like, oh yeah, I went to Santa Monica Community College, you're like, cool, that's great, you know, and someone comes up and says, I went to Harvard. Does it mean anything different to us? Kind of does, doesn't it? Right? They do the U.S. college rankings, they, they rank colleges, right? Colleges are always fighting for that. Look what we're doing, look what we're doing, we're getting, we got to get ranked higher, we're better, we provide a crazier education, it's more intense, our professors are smarter, all this sort of stuff. You get out of school, career, salary, let's talk salary, right? You talk about salary, you start out making 10 bucks an hour, okay, which is $20,800 a year before taxes. Let's say in five years, you're at 75 grand a year right? It's probably because you're doing what? Working hard, providing more for the company, right? Getting more results for the company, moving up. You're doing better, aren't you? No one's like, oh, well, I mean, if you thought about going back to 10 bucks an hour, right? Like, no one does that, do you? Think about cars. Think about cars, right? I drive a Honda minivan. Don't be jealous, okay? (laughs) I have a Honda minivan. I was in Beverly Hills last night. You should have seen when they pulled that thing up. The valet pulled that thing up, right? Right behind a Bentley and a Ferrari. Okay. Yeah, I tell the valet, you ever driven one of these things? <laughs> right? Be careful. It's a four-cylinder, right? <clears throat> There's three car seats in the back, <laughs> right? Someone gets, you get a Honda, great car, right? But even within the Honda family, you say, I got an Acura. Did you go up or down? 
you went up, right? It's kind of a premium brand. You say, I got a Lamborghini. You're like, who'd you steal it from? First of all, right? <laughs> Lamborghini, right? Why? Is, is it a better car? Anyone driven a Lamborghini? It's a better car, I'll tell you. It's a better car. Put your hand down, Mike. <laughs> Lawyers. <laughs> you got a, kind of a, a spectrum, a scale, a system, don't we? House. What about your house? We do it. Maybe we shouldn't. You've driven through Malibu, right? You look at those houses a little differently than maybe the houses in your neighborhood. A little bigger, more amenities, actual green grass. They pay for that, right? We've got kind of a scale. We're kind of measuring right or wrong. Look, some of these things are right. Some of these things are wrong, but we live in and amongst measurement all the time. Even celebrity status. I was at um, pre-Oscars parties for work last night and the night before. And how do you rank celebrities? Lists. They call them lists, right? So we're getting all these people coming through a suite. We have a lounge and we've got celebrities coming in and looking at the products that I I work for, for the company I work for. And you got like C-list celebrities. You heard that term? Like C-list, like what are they trying to do? They're trying to become what? B-list, right? You get like B-list celebrities. Like I met Luis Guzman, hung out with him. You guys know him? You shouldn't, he's a crude hacker. No, I'm kidding, he's a great guy. It's really chill, really hilarious in person too. And then last night, actually the last celebrity I hung out with was Jamie Foxx. What's he? He's A-list, right? And I'm telling you, there's a massive difference. Like the C-list people come in and they're like begging for attention. They're like, hey, I've, you know, I have a YouTube. We're like, everyone has a YouTube, dude. I signed up for Gmail, <laughs> right? And they're trying to hustle. Like I got people that follow me. And everyone's like, okay, cool, man. You know, a B-list comes in. It's kind of a little bit more buzz, right? Maybe, you know, TMZ was there. Huff, Huffington Post was there. They're kind of like, oh, you know, Luis Guzman. Okay, cool. This, uh, right? What do you think happened when Jamie Foxx walked in? First of all, it's a little sad because he brought his daughter. He lives out here, by the way. He recently rescued a guy from a, a crash outside his, his uh, house, just right up here. In fact, that's what I talked to him about. I was like, hey, I live in Thousand Oaks, so I know what you did for bread. And he's like, oh, holy smokes. But what do you, I mean, he brought his daughter, and, and I noticed this through the time that I had with him. Someone had to have physical contact with her at all times. So when Jamie Foxx was next to his daughter, he kept his hand on his shoulder. And then when he came to shake my hand, his bodyguard went like this. Put his hand on his shoulder. And then when the bodyguard stepped back, because we were doing photos and blah, 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 his friend came up and put his hand on his shoulder. Right? I, don't, I don't envy celebs, but he's an A-list celeb. He had a mob of people coming in. Just a mob, right? Measurement, right? Some of it's deserved. It. Jamie Foxx, he's an epic actor. He's awesome, right? The guy with the YouTube, like, eh, I don't care, Right? Why? Because we measure, don't we? Work harder, get paid more. Bring in more money, get paid more. Work harder, get better grades. Do more things, get more followers, right? And again, some of this is good, some of it is bad. But what happens is that it becomes terrible when we translate it to our faith. Becomes terrible, becomes utterly detrimental, Because we live surrounded by measurement and spectrums and grading systems and scales. What happens is that it bleeds into morality and righteousness. And so we start to do what? We start to set up measurements. We start to set up scales, perhaps even from a good intention. Look, the Pharisees and the scribes actually came from a place of good intention, I wanted to keep God's word. Like most people, you say like, I want to keep God's word. People are like, yeah, great, right? That's like a, not a bad thing necessarily. But when it becomes the focus of your faith or when it becomes the measure 
of your righteousness becomes an entirely demonic thing. And so we live surrounded by measurements. When it comes to our morality and righteousness, we tend to start to do the same thing. We start to think about, well, you know, when I was, when I was worse, I did this. Now that I'm better in my faith, I'm doing this or I'm not doing that. And there's a certain, again, degree of validity to some of that. But one of the things that's going to happen tonight is that Paul isn't going to allow for that at all. And so when it comes to morality, righteousness, as I said, there's, there's, there's basically two mentalities, I'd say. There's three. One is the right one, and we're going to go through that, of course. That's the big finish, right? But the first one is we've, we kind of see this scale, and we see this sort of measurement scale, kind of like what we've been talking about, to do better and to get higher and to be better at things. Though we may never say, I'm doing this to be right before God, in our heart a lot of times, that's what we actually begin to do. Perhaps the other mentality is too, is that it's like saying, well, look, being, being good was really tough in the Old Testament, right? We all agree, like every, no one's like, no one wanted to be born in the Old Testament. If you did, you're crazy. You haven't read it. I I'm praise Jesus every day I was born after the cross, right? I got nothing against goats. I don't think we should slaughter them at church. I love bacon, turkey bacon, which most of you think is fake bacon, but I actually think it tastes better, right? I got nothing against bacon, okay? Sometimes I work on Saturdays, okay? Look, I praise Jesus every day for the new covenant. And the Bible says it's a better covenant, by the way. But kind of the, some, sometimes the mentality is like, man, it was really hard to be righteous in the Old Testament, but then Jesus came. And it's like, no big deal now, right? Now we're good. It's like, whatever goes, bro, right? But if you take a look at Jesus' words, he actually makes it harder. Do you know that? Jesus didn't make it easy. Say, I'm here, don't worry about anything, right? He said this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, you've heard it said that it was said to those of old. So he says, look, in the Old Testament, you've heard this. Because that's all they had at the time, by the way, was the Old Testament. Look, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, right? Most people, I think, haven't murdered anyone in this room. If you have, let's, let's chat afterwards, okay? Most people are like, got that, I'm good. Jesus is like, I know you think you are. You've heard it said, do not murder. Thou shall not murder, which is different than kill, by the way, but that's a different subject. Do not murder. Like, good, got that. Haven't murdered anyone. What's next, Jesus? And whoever murders will be in the danger of judgment. Yeah, get them, they murdered. But I say to you that whoever is angry, raise your hand if you've ever been angry at someone. Look at all the murderers in the room. I almost put that on Facebook and I was like, ah, NSA might come after me. Like, I have murdered. And then I was going to put like the scripture reference. I'm like, mm, I don't know what the FBI these days. I'm not sure. Like Zuckerberg, <laughs> emailing that off to the FBI. But he says this, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in the danger, shall be in danger of the judgment. Is that easier or harder now? Used to be just don't murder. Most of us have kind of like, that's kind of easy. Don't know if I could do it anyways. Then Jesus comes and says, you've heard it said, it was just don't murder. But I tell you this, if you've ever been angry without cause, you've murdered. Does it get easier or harder? Righteousness just became harder. Some of you think Jesus came and lowered the bar. Jesus came and raised the bar. 
Like, well, that's just one example. Oh, he continued, don't worry. He says, and ever, whoever says to his brother, Raka, which just means spit, it just means to say something in scorn of someone. Raise your hand if you've said something in scorn, even either under your breath, in your heart, or verbally. You've said something in scorn against someone. Put your hands up. Ladies, you two, put your hands up, right? Guys are just jerks about it. You all are manipulative about it, right? You keep it quiet. You do it in your little girl groups. Guys just punch someone. I hate you. Girls are like, oh, she didn't. Come here. Let's talk about We need to go out for a martini, right? And you start talking about, you've ever said anything in scorn of someone? It says, if anyone says to his brother Raka, which means literally to spit, shall be in the danger of counsel, but whoever says you fool shall be in the danger of hellfire. Anyone thought your friend was a fool? Called someone an idiot? Called a politician a moron? Right? Jesus came and did what? Lower the bar? No, he raised it. Is righteousness easier now or harder than it was in the Old Testament? It's harder. Oh, but that's only two examples. I'll give one more because I, I like rule of thirds. He says this. You have heard it said... It was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. So you can't sleep with a woman who's not your wife. Got it, piece of cake. No worries, she'd kill me anyways. She would if you met my wife. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. You don't have to raise your hand, guys and girls alike. And girls don't get called out on this too much. We act like y'all don't think guys are hot, right, in the church. Like, men lost. We're like, so do you girls. You're just quiet about it, right? See how you watch Brad Pitt movies, let's be honest, okay? If you lust, if you lust, you've committed adultery. Is righteousness now easier? Oh, it's harder by Jesus' standards. It's harder And so we come into Romans 3. In the beginning of Romans 3, we're actually going to begin at verse 9. But the beginning of it is the continuation of what Zach addressed last week. Keep in mind, when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapters, didn't have verses. They were just one long letter. I've seen the original manuscript of the book of Isaiah. It's just the longest sentence you've ever seen. It went around a whole room in Israel. It's a huge circle, looked like a Hershey kiss. It's the coolest museum I've been in. They don't actually display the real one anymore, but they brought a fake one into the the Calvary community a couple of years ago or something like that. But look, no verses, no breakdown, no like titles, no like, this is the part where he addresses God's judgment. Okay, one long letter. And so the beginning of this chapter is him defending what Zach got into last week, which is God's ability to judge. But you need to see what he's doing here. So he sets up just first and foremost, again, coming out of last week, he says that, look, God has every right to judge. Now in his forbearance, he withholds which was the biggest point for me last week was that one of the ways that we display the gospel is when we withhold wrath. When we, when we are patient in doling out wrath, it's because why we're reflecting a God who's patient in doling out his wrath. Doesn't mean he doesn't have wrath. It doesn't mean that it's not coming. It just means that in his forbearance, he's slow to anger. He's slow to pour out wrath. And so what Paul does at the beginning, he says, look, in, this, in, in a couple various forms of argumentation at the beginning of this chapter, he says, look, God, look, long story short, God has every right to judge. God has every right to judge. He can be both loving and just at the same time. Imagine this. There's a female judge. We'll call her Susan. 
Susan has a son. <laughs> oh, man, you make me feel bloody. <laughs> I love Mark. Are we hanging out tonight? Outstanding. Sons of Anarchy. Don't watch it. It's a terrible show. All right, and so let's just call it Judge Susan. Judge Susan is a, a single mom, but got her life on track, got epic grades in high school. She nailed it, valedictorian. Went on to the best law school. Mike, best law school. Harvard. Went to Harvard. She, she, she wasn't average at Harvard. She was epic at Harvard. She killed it. She had like an 8.0 GPA. Right? Epic. Wrote for the Har- Harvard Journal of Law. We'll call it. That doesn't exist, I don't think. <laughs> I should plan out my analogies better. <laughs> she wrote, she got the best internships. She got the best law degree. She went on to be a seated judge. She was respected by everyone. Lawyers size up judges like crazy. Oh, this one's wonky. They're going that way. Both the defense, right? Both sides, prosecution and the defense, we want her. She's been so just. She's been so just. She's epic at it. All the while she's raising her son. One night she comes home. He's been off. Cops come to the door. Knock on the door. Your son, we'll call him Chris. Your son, Chris, has been caught on camera committing a murder. Do you know where he is? She says, I have no idea. Days go by. She's never seen him. It's all through the news. He's done it. He's absolutely done it. It's clear. YouTubers are trying to attack it. Bloggers are going after it. Look, he did it. He absolutely did it. The audio, the video, it all matches up. It's there. This was with malice and forethought. A couple days later, she's in her study. She's reading. She hears the back door open. Chris comes in. Says, Mom, I'm scared out of my mind. I don't know what to do. They're coming after me. You gotta hide me. You've gotta hide me. She loves her son. She aches for her son. She wants to hold him and protect him and care for him. But she must be just. Wouldn't we agree? Would not her history, would not the very nature of who she is demand that though she love him, though she wish he not perish, she must what? She must be just. And so the Bible says that God wishes that none should perish. How could a loving God condemn anyone? How could a loving God allow anyone to go to hell? Because though he loves and aches for everyone, he is a just judge. He must allow for righteous judgment or else he's not just and he's made himself out to be a liar. Paul's gonna do two things. And Zach prepped it last week. Zach said it beautifully. He said what? There's two buckets of people. There's only two. We've taught a whole series on not getting away from the simplicity of the gospel. There's two buckets of people. Sinners and Jesus. You need to know that. It's not Christians and non-Christians. It's not Christians and atheists. It's not Christians and Buddhists. It's not Christians and Easterns. 
It's not the West versus the East. It's not Calvary versus Episcopalian. It's sinners and Jesus. That's it. What Paul's going to do here is he's going to press us on both those things. What he's going to do is he's going to deconstruct a sinner and then he's going to resurrect Jesus. Or he's going to build us up in Christ. He's going to deconstruct the sin nature and then build us back up in who Jesus is and what he has done. And look, if you're to the point in your faith where you're like, I know this, what's next? You missed it. You missed it. If you ever get tired of hearing what Paul's going to get to in this chapter, you missed the point. You got to start over. Some people are like, I understand the gospel. What is next? If you say what is next, you don't understand the gospel. This is the core of our faith. This right here, what we're going to talk about. It's repeated in various other places in the Bible for sure. But keep in mind, Paul gets to it. As Zach said, Paul gets to it. Paul doesn't, look, he doesn't mince words, especially with the Romans. This is a guy who's been in Roman prison. He's witness to the guards next to him. These guys were not cute. This is like Navy SEAL status in the ancient time, the Praetorian Guard. Like I imagine those guys like flip dice to see who had watched with Paul. Like I'm not going back in there with that little man. That guy bugs the living daylights out of me. My shifts are 12 hours and all he's doing is talking about Jesus. He comes in there and be like, hey there, have a seat, Maximus. Did you think about what we talked about yesterday, right? Sits down. He knows and he doesn't mince words. This is a militant culture, the Romans. Militant. I mean, try writing a letter to like the Marine Corps. Call them to repentance. Practice that tonight. Dear United States Marine Corps, you guys are pretty terrible. Right? I was in the Marine Corps. I know this. Right? Imagine writing to this militant culture. And as Zach said, look, he's not even writing to like atheists. In fact, they called Christians what? Atheists. Like you guys have one God? Underachievers? We have like hundreds. We got one for everything. We got one for sex. We've got one for food. We've got one for everything you can imagine. The Romans did God's epic. They had tons of gods but they didn't serve the one true God. So Paul writes a letter to this culture. Work-oriented culture. You read the gospel of Mark. That was written to the Roman mindset. That's why Mark is like the shortest of all the gospels. And all the, like 40 something times, he's like, immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus did this, then he did that. It's like no messing around. Because the Romans are like, what did he do? How does it work? That's how Romans think. They're like, if you're going to take away, I got to go, I got things to do. And so he's writing to the Roman culture, to the militant culture of the Romans. And here, after, after two chapters of, of building, he comes into God's judgment. But what he must do is deconstruct the sinner before he can rebuild in what Jesus has done. And so in verse nine, he begins this deconstruction. It says, what then? Are we better than they? And look, Paul was a Jew. When he says we, he's talking about Jews. Paul was an amazing Jew, circumcised at the right time, which meant he was a cultural Jew. From the stock of Israel, which means his heritage was Jewish. From the tribe of Benjamin, which was a prestigious tribe that gave Israel its first king. He's like we, and what he's saying is we, God's people. He's like, so he's talking to the Jews. No, he's talking to us. God's people. 
entirely applicable today. He says, we, now God's people, as we've been grafted in as Gentiles, he says, are we better than they? And he's talking to Jews saying, look, are we better than the Romans? Are we better? And now imagine the Romans reading this, being like, is he calling out the Jews? He's a, but he's a Jew and we're, you see what he's doing? This is an amazing, this is, this is absolutely amazing when you talk to your friends that aren't Christians. You start the whole thing by deconstructing, do you, do you think, I've done this with people, do you think I think I'm better than you? Well, yeah, you think like you're, cho- like you're good with God and I'm not, right? Have you heard that? Like you just think that you're special, like Christians are the ones that God's like, I'm, I'm, picking, the, I'm picking the Christians. No, he picked sinners and made them Christians. He says, are we better than they? And that's, that's a challenge for us too. Do you think better of yourself than non-Christians? Paul's not gonna allow for it, even with Jews. He says, are we better than they? Not at all, he says, not at all. Jews aren't better than the Romans, which had to freak both sides out. Jews are like, what? I'm pretty sure we are. Have you read the Bible? We're like doing all the stuff. Those pigs are worshiping whoever they want. And the Romans are like, wait, wait, you don't think you're better than us? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. This is the current state of humanity. Look, you need to know that the world is upside down. The world is upside down. We live inverted. We have since the garden. There's a reason there is a lock on your front door. Why is it? At its core, what's the reason? Sin. There's a reason there is an entire justice system to keep people from doing immoral things. What is the core of the reason we have a justice system? It's not for fun. It's not like, hey, guys, those guys love wearing black robes. Let's come up with some sort of system where they sit up there and judge people. The core need, the core necessity for a justice system is what? Sin. We live upside down. We think this is normal. And the beauty is, is that when you see a miracle in the Bible, you're like, whoa, he like, like we live normal and then he like turned everything upside down for a minute and then it went back to normal. No, we live upside down. And when you see a miracle happen, it's because Jesus restored it for a brief moment. That's what a miracle is. Feeds everyone with a lunchable. We live upside down where we get hungry. And for a brief moment, he used a miracle to say, look, where I come from, no one's hungry. And then we go back upside down again. He says, we're all under sin. All of us, Jew, Greek, Christian, atheist, we're all under sin. He doesn't allow for it. And then what he's going to do is he's going to quote the Old Testament because he says, as it is written, smart to do so. What he uses here is five passages from Psalms and one from Isaiah. If, for the purposes of the video, and if you want to get these later, it's Psalms 14, one through three, Psalms 5, nine, Psalms 143, verse three, Psalms 10, seven, and Psalms 36, 1. Those are the Psalms passages. And then Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. And he says this. What he's going to do is from head to toe, from heart out, he's going to deconstruct the sin mentality. 
And I prayed against condemnation, but I prayed for conviction, did I not? I pray that's what you've come for as well. Condemnation is of the devil. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit. So he's going to deconstruct quite literally from head to toe, inside out. Watch how he does it. He says, there is none righteous. That's a great way to start with non-Christian friends. I'm telling you, there is nothing they want to hear more than I am no better than you. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. There are two buckets. You and I are in the same bucket. There is none righteous. It says, no, not one. There is none who understands. He addresses the mind. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God in their heart. There is none that seeks after, after God. What we seek is to make ourselves God. Christianity does not teach, unlike all the other religions, which teach you to seek out God however you can. Ours is the only faith that preaches a God that sought you out. People say, you've got to find God, you've got to look for him, you've got to, you've got to find out who he is through all this sort of stuff. The Bible preaches that God found you, you didn't find him. We, like Adam and Eve, even in their perfection, wanted to make themselves God. They heard what Satan said, they said, hey, you could be like him. Same sin that got kicked him out of heaven, got us kicked out of the garden. Why? Were they seeking after God? No, they were seeking after putting themselves up as God. It says, no one seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become unprofitable. The word in the original language simply means like rotten fruit. It's, use, it's useless anymore. It's useless. In our own search to make ourselves God, we've become absolutely useless. We've become like rotten fruit. Given life by God and then running after glory for ourselves, we've become like rotten fruit. They've become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat, he addresses the throat. Their throat is an open tomb. It's brutal. With their tongues, he talks about the tongue, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Some of you have a cursing problem. I've had a cursing problem in the past. In fact, in clarification, a couple weeks ago, I said something that some people thought was the F word. I said freaking, and I shouldn't be saying freaking anyways, because y'all are like, I know what you're substituting it for. And so I apologize if anyone was caught on that. Someone called me like, did you say what I think you said? I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I went back, I checked the video, super sweet, I turned it way up. I mumbled it. I said freaking, okay? Like I've come from that. Like I said, I was in the Marine Corps. People are like, oh, you swear like a sailor. Who do you think they learned it from? <laughs> the Marine Corps. I was an idiot. Right? Some of you have a cursing problem. Some of you have a bitterness problem. Right? Just bitter. Good things go on for other people. You think you've got nothing good. Just bitter about everything. He says, we use our mouths and it's full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And I didn't know. Man, what the heck. Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of Democrat bashing that goes on in the church today. There's a lot of Democrat bashing that goes on in the evangelical church in America today. And I'm not here to bash, but I'm here to call out. If you take a look at the two political parties, which one is swift to want blood? The Republican Party. 
Republican Party. Look, I'm probably the only one in the room that's been to war. It's not pretty. Probably the only one with a combat action ribbon on my uniform. It's hanging in the closet. Seen death. Afflicted death. It's not pretty. And I'm not here defending or bashing any particular war. I was in Iraq. Arguably, since Vietnam, the most contested. It'll probably go down in history as one of the most contested wars of all time. Right? Bible here says that their feet are swift to shed blood. Be careful. Be careful about who you listen to that just gets super excited about going to war. Look, and there's a time for it. Look, Ecclesiastes talks about there's a time for war and there's a time for peace, right? A lot of times people err on the side. No, it's all peace for all time. Eh, said no Bible verse ever. And everyone's like, oh, but look, it says there's a time for war. Yeah, but you forgot there's a time for peace. Look at those hippies. Yeah, it says there's a time for war, but it also says there's a time for peace. There's a time to build up and there's a time to destroy. That's the biblical perspective. If both sides are angry at you, you're probably in the middle with Jesus. Be careful. Some of you get really giddy about war. It's not pretty. Waking up to a bomb dropping next to you is not pretty when you've got a family at home. I've done it. I've watched guys die on a battlefield. I've watched terrorists blow themselves up. I've dropped bombs on buildings. It's not pretty. It's not sexy. The only people that think war is sexy is Hollywood. That's it. Swift to shed blood. Be careful, those around you. Be careful in your own heart when you get into these conversations about how excited you are that other people go off and kill other people. Be careful. I hope you don't take that as, as me with a sledgehammer, but as people of God, we gotta take a look at verses like this seriously. Paul says you need to be careful about how swift. Doesn't, he doesn't say you can't shed blood by any means. There's a difference between murder and killing in the original language and in ours. That's why we have two different words for it. But what I'm saying is be careful about how quick. There's a time for a swift response. I get it. But be careful. Be careful about those in charge that are just uber excited about other people killing on their behalf. Be careful. Doesn't make it right or wrong. In any given situation, I'm not, again, dealing with any instance. But be careful that we're not people that are swift to shed blood. We okay with that? Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. No, some of you haven't breathed in five minutes right now, right? You're like blue right now. Okay. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. It just means that wherever people go somewhere, wherever some people go, it's just destruction and misery. No one gets excited that they're in the room, right? They're like, oh, shoot, shut the party down early. Oh, man, he's here. People start leaving, right? Destruction and misery. The ways of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so he just goes through and he dissects the sin nature. And he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, check this out, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world, everyone say all, all, That's the bucket Zach was talking about. All, that's that bucket. Us included. 
I'm telling you, this is building to the glory of the gospel. It's not to the glory of you or what you've been doing or me or what I've been doing. This is putting us all in one bucket because he wants to get to the next one. He wants to get to this bucket. It's a lot cleaner over here. He says, all the world guilty. Guilty is a legal term, is it not? Guilty. Here's the thing. Here's the crazy thing. We think that we tilt the scales and if we're generally good, God will look upon us with favor. Does that work in an earthly courtroom? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll confess again. I may be the only one here that stood before a judge as a criminal defendant, not as a lawyer, as the criminal. Stood there. I didn't walk up and he'd be like, tell me about yourself. I'm usually good except for that time. Are you serious? You're usually good? I am. I'm usually good. On that, get out of here, you crazy. What are you doing here? What are you doing, man? Your parents are here. The judge said this. Your parents are here. You've clearly got a good upbringing. They're with you. He's like, you're clearly an idiot, but they're here. So they, are you generally, you're gen- why didn't you just say it? Bailiff, dude's generally good. Get him out of here. Bring in the guys that are generally bad. Bring in the 51 percenters on that side. It doesn't even work in a fallen, broken, earthly trial. They're like, look, I did this, but look, I've been doing awesome all my life. I haven't done all these things and I've been doing all these things. I was in key club. I was in sports. I was a captain. I was great. I go to church. What are you judged on? You're judged on that one thing you've done. You're judged on that one thing you're done. Not on your general ability to tip the scale in your favor. And so when the Bible says that one sin, one sin separates you from him. One sin separates you. Paul says, all are guilty. All are guilty. You want to live by the law? You'd be condemned by the law. All are guilty under the law. He says, all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, for those of you that have been trying, that in your heart you've been telling yourself, that I must stay right before God and so I'm doing and so I'm doing and so I'm do- and I'm here tonight this guy's yelling at me he's wearing a creepy shirt but I'm here but at least I'm here because I should be here on Sunday my parents told me that I should go to church when I'm in college right I should do this he says therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified and that's a legal term Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. By the deeds of the law, no flesh. Everyone say no flesh. That's that one bucket. It's that one bucket we're hanging out in, yelling at other people about how bad they are. They're like, homie, you're in the same bucket. You can't get out of this thing either, right? It's like being in a well and screaming at how dumb some other guy is because he's in a well. What are you doing down here? Idiot, what'd you do to get down here? And he's like, Right? What are you doing here? Right? All in that bucket. Deconstructing the sinner before we can be rebuilt in what Christ has done. By deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Here's the key insight. For by the law, you want to know what the intention of the law is? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For by the law 
is the knowledge of sin. Elsewhere, it's known as, it's, it's, it's described as being a schoolmaster. We don't keep the law to be right before God. We attempt to keep the law and then understand that we can't. That's the point of the law. There has to be a standard. God didn't just say, I create everything, try to figure it out, and then kick back. He says, look, here's, here's the law. Look, it was in the Old Testament. It was a tall order. Then the New Testament came and Jesus made it an even taller order. And then we're called to be perfect as our Father is perfect in heaven. So that's the standard. If you want to know what you need to do in order to be good before God, it's real simple. Be perfect. How's that going in this bucket? How'd that go today for you? Just today. How'd that work out? One sin. Let's talk about that one sin in front of the judge. That one sin. Regardless of how good you've been, that one sin separates you from God for eternity. He says, all the world, one of the ways we come to understand that we're in need of a savior is because we can't keep the law. And so he says, through the law, the knowledge of sin. And so he's just deconstructed. He's writing to the Romans. He says, look, you know you've all done it. What? How'd you know? What are you talking about? What we? It. Those things. That list that pops up in your head when I say sin. I didn't do that. That thing that beseeches you, that, that, that thing that you do alone, that thing you do in dark places, that things you do on Fridays and Saturdays that you try to make people believe didn't exist Monday through Thursday. The things in your heart, the things in your mind, the things that come out of your mouth, thought, word, and deed. All, he says, all guilty. Guilty. Told you, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't, look, he's, he's not cute with the Romans. Like, hey guys, how's it going? How's it going? Can I tell you about, he just gets right to it. He says, look, all guilty, bam. And he gets to it. He comes at it harsh because it's a harsh culture. He comes at it hard, but he won't leave you hanging there. He will not allow you to sit and dwell in your guilt. God didn't even allow Adam and Eve to sit in their guilt the moment they sinned, he swooped in. And what did he do? He preached the gospel to them. Immediately in Genesis 3, it's what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. They sinned, everything was fractured. Here comes the curse and God swoops in and says, I'm gonna send a solution. He didn't allow them. Let's be honest, it would have been us. Awesome. Like, you need to sit in that for a while. Think about what you've done. We'll talk tomorrow morning. Wouldn't you? Right? If I wrote the Bible, the whole thing would have ended in Genesis 3. Been like, I gave you everything, you screwed it up. Experiment over. Genesis 3, they sin, they separate from God, they make themselves out to be God. And what does God do? He comes in, he says, where's Adam? And he goes and he talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and he preaches to them the first gospel. He doesn't allow them to sit. This isn't about you thinking lowly of yourself, it's about you thinking highly of Jesus. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. It's thinking more highly of others. And so I'm not trying to push any of us down. What I'm trying to do is set the stage to push Jesus back up. And that's what Paul does. He deconstructs the sinner. And then he goes into this, verse 21. It says, but, thank goodness, but, 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 
says, you got it? Guilty bucket? Yes, stop talking about the buckets. I get it, right? And he says, but, but now, but now, this is where you should begin to be stirred with your affections. Thank goodness this chapter doesn't end there. You start to become more enamored. As Zach taught us in in chapter one when he talks about being set apart, the word that we get that set apart from means it's where we get our word horizon. We're talking about having a a new horizon. I love that. I would not have come up with that in my first sermon if I did chapter one. New horizon, all I've been thinking about since we kicked off the series, this new horizon, this higher way of thinking. It doesn't mean we're getting to a lower place with ourselves. It means that we're getting now to a higher place in our thoughts and affections for Jesus. So he says, but now the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Matthew 5, 20, Jesus said this right before he started to list some of those things where he raised the bar, he said this, check this out. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds, exceeds. He doesn't say if you could be as good as What does he say? If your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Like what? Jesus hated those guys. He was always fighting with those guys. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, New Testament, right? New Testament, Jesus was kumbaya. No, no. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How's that working out for you? Be honest. Let's have a chat real quick. Come on. How's that going? Who mem- who's memorized the first five books of the Bible? How many of you can't even name the first five books of the Bible? All right? You guys, do you guys pray as much as the scribes and the Pharisees? The scribes were the legal team, by the way. They were the smart upper middle class, upper class lawyers. Okay, no offense. It's your heritage, Mike. Okay, so, right? <laughs> right? Upper middle class to upper class. Scribes are the lawyers. These guys were responsible for studying, interpreting, clarifying, and transcribing the law. Amazing. And what they, they had the whole room with the books and everything, or the scrolls, right? Just, Top to bottom, books, smart, super smart. The Pharisees, these were the middle-class businessmen, which meant they were, they were super tight with the common folk. That's why they had so much influence. They were actually a minority in the Sanhedrin, but they had the most influence. Why? Because they spoke on behalf of the majority. These guys were awesome. They memorized, look, we are at best JV compared to these guys. At best. We ain't seeing any field time with those guys on the field. They are all stars, all Americans at being religious. Memorized entire books of the Bible. We think we're cute with John 3.16. Which one's that? (laughs) Entire books of the Bible. They prayed on the spot, no matter where they are, where they were, like clockwork on the street, anywhere. If the Bible didn't clarify it, they would. These guys were 
epic. And, and, and Jesus says, look, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you're never getting in. How on earth does your righteousness then exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Easy, it's not yours. It's not yours. The righteousness that you wear when you stand for judgment can't be yours. Even by that standard, let alone God's. So he says, look, you're going to stand there. You're going to put on your suit. You're going to put on your cloak and stand before a holy and perfect God. I even told you while I was down there, if it didn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you ain't getting in. So how on earth does it happen? Whose righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus is alone. And in that great exchange, when you take off your wickedness and you put on his righteousness, it says God's righteousness, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament, pointing forward to this, the better covenant, the better way. It says even the righteousness of God in verse 22, through faith, through faith, Here's the process. You're going to see him lay out a threefold process. How does this exchange happen? How does it, I get the cross, but then now we're in Romans and, and, and now we're in 2016. Here it is. It's threefold. Faith, justification, propitiation. That's what he lays out. So he says faith. This is where it starts off. This is it. This is what's known in the Protestant Reformation as sola fide. It just means by faith alone. That's it. Faith alone is what gives you access to this righteousness. Not faith plus good works. Though as we studied in James, a true faith will produce works, right? But it will not be added unto your faith. And so he says this, he's going to lay it out. He's going to say faith, he's going to say justification, he's going to say propitiation. Watch. Paul's a brilliant mind. He's speaking to smart folks. He says, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus... He has to say in Jesus, did you know that faith won't save you? You just said it would like 32 seconds ago, right? Faith itself doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. If I'm drowning in a pool and I have faith that that lifesaver, that little ring thing is going to save me, that's great. But unless that ring thing gets to me, I drown. It's not my faith in that thing that saved it, that saved me. It's when that thing, the object of my faith, comes and gets me. So you're told by the world, look, have faith. Be spiritual. In what? In whom? And can that object actually save me? Because if I got all my faith in a Skittle, I still drown. Even if that Skittle gets to me in the pool. I got a sweet rainbow taste on my mouth, but I'm going down. I love Skittles. I miss Skittles. I don't eat them much anymore. But Unless the object of my faith, some of you are going to hear nothing the rest of the sermon, right? Unless the object of my faith has the ability to save me and comes to me, I'm dead. And so it's not just general faith. Paul says, it's not just faith. Hey, through faith, you're good. He says, faith in whom? Jesus. The only one whose righteousness is above the scribes and the Pharisees. Muhammad never said he was perfect. Buddha never said he was perfect. Krishna never said he was perfect. Mother Teresa never said she was perfect. The Pope never said he was perfect. Jesus says, you've got nothing on me. Nothing. 
He's the only object of our faith that comes to us and pulls us out from under the water. So it must be a faith in Jesus, not in anything else. Faith in and of itself can't save you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And so he says it must be faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your religious traditions. It doesn't matter the home you grew up in, the country you were born in, the state you live in, the color of your skin, the the SAT scores or your current job. It doesn't matter any of that. All, one bucket, plucked out by one man. Faith in Jesus, for there is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned. For all have sinned. Another great way to start the conversation with your non-Christian friends. So you think you're better than me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why you and I just stand facing this way together. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And in the original language, crazy enough, it means all. I did an intense study. I looked it up and everything. Confirmed with four scholars. Does all mean all? It means all. Gotcha, cool. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 24, being justified. So you believe in Jesus, you take off your wickedness, he puts on your righteousness, and now the judge says what? Now you're perfect. That's how we're able to be perfect as our Father is perfect in heaven. Though we're still a sinner. Sinner, saint. Come on now. All right, so check this out. Being justified. So now the judge says, now you're good. Now you're, now you're as if you've never sinned. Justified, justified, never sinned. The father looks at us, or Jesus, who actually does all the judging, by the way. Correct myself on that. Bible says that the father has given all judgment to the son. Why? Because he received all judgment on the cross. So now Jesus, by the way, who gave you his righteousness is the one that's gonna judge you? How do you think that goes? Freaking goes epic. Oh, I said freaking. It's, it's, it goes awesome, Right? It goes awesome. Jesus is like, oh, you're wearing my robe. Get in there, right? Justified. Now you're justified. You have faith. Judge says you're justified. One more thing happens. Being justified freely by his grace. Grace means getting something you don't deserve. This is what we call justifying grace. Getting that, though we don't deserve it, it has nothing to do with what you've done, that you were 51% of the time, pretty awesome, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And redemption is just talking about, look, you have a gift card, right? You do what to that? It says it right there on it. It says to redeem, go to www.blah, To do what? To buy something that's been paid for by someone else. That's what redemption means. You've now been purchased. Why? For what you've done? No, it was paid for by someone else. These are the basics. If you're like, I've heard this, but let's, what, what's next? You don't understand this. Every day, this is the core of our faith. So we have faith. We're justified. It says this in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation. It's a Bible nerd word. Here we go, hold on. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. He encapsulates it. It's a bookend. He's like, look, I need you to know this whole thing's about faith. It's about sola fidei. It's about faith alone. Propitiation simply means this, the removal. 
okay? So guy walks into the court, says, I believe in what Jesus done. The righteousness is put on his account. Judge says, you're innocent. And now what happens? Propitiation, the removal of divine wrath. So the wrath that should have been poured out on that sinner in that courtroom is now what? It's been diverted. You come in guilty, the whole world guilty, but I have faith, righteousness put on your account, declared innocent, justified, and now the propitiation, which means the removal of impending wrath. Some of us don't like to think about God like that. Some of us think since because Jesus happened, God doesn't have any wrath, that there's no more wrath. I mean, in the Old Testament, he straight up just killed people. He's not doing that anymore, to my knowledge, right? Why? Because Jesus absorbed all his wrath on the cross, and now Jesus holds it. In heaven, he holds it. This is literally true. Jesus is in heaven right now, listening to your heart, listening to my sermon, with the store of all God's wrath upon him. The removal of the divine wrath. And so we're, pass- we're living in this passive wrath era in human history where it's not being actively poured out like it was in the Old Testament. It's being, it's being held back in forbearance, as Zach taught last week. In forbearance, he's patiently waiting. And Jesus, it says, will come to tread the winepress of the fury and wrath of Almighty God. It says that when Jesus does decide that enough is enough, he and only he gets to come down and pour it back out. God the Father is satisfied. God the Father isn't angry anymore. And Jesus holds back his wrath. Like, why does he let these things happen? Because he's holding it back in love and in forbearance, wishing that none should perish. And he holds back wrath, but he won't hold back forever. And so we look up and we praise the Jesus that has absorbed all wrath and propitiation. He has removed divine wrath from us and so that wrath that was intended for us was poured out on Jesus on the cross that's why your sins are forgiven it's not that Jesus merely died on the cross it's that he was broken by God the Father and the wrath of God poured out on him so that those that put their faith in what he has done not what you can do are said enter in they're told enter in good and faithful servant before Jesus goes and demolishes his enemies. So Jesus sits in forbearance, holding the wrath of God. It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Here it comes again, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You see, God had to judge sin, did he not? Think back to Judge Susan. Did she not have to allow for justice? She did. God the Father had to pour out wrath. Cosmic treason had been committed. He had to or else he's not a good judge. The difference for the Christian is that the wrath intended for us was then poured out on Jesus. Same bucket plucked out by one man. One of my favorite metal bands for today has a lyric that says, he carried me back from hell by his nail-scarred hands. Everyone headed to hell. And for those that put their faith that that object can come and save them and that object is Jesus, he comes and he grips us and he carries us back from hell with nail-scarred hands. And so he says, this propitiation and in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the the present time his righteousness 
that he might be just, see? That he might be just and justifier. That he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look, Sunday night, this is what separates us from every false religion on the planet. Every false religion, every religion, bring one to me, I'll show you. It's in some way, shape, or form what you do for God. In some way, shape, or form, what can you do for God? Christianity is the only faith that teaches by faith. It's about what God has done for you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I'm excited just to be even jolted in my own faith back to this core truth at the heart of the gospel that we're set apart for this truth, that we are guilty in our own right, by our very nature, guilty. But by your very nature, we're made innocent. That through faith in Jesus, the only object that can actually come to us, who has come to us, who has the power to save us, that that faith would then be counted as your righteousness as we drop the heavy cloak of wickedness and put on the light robe of righteousness. Understanding that the wrath that should have been poured out on us for who we are was poured out on Jesus for who he is. And that is the centrality of the cross. And I pray that no one thinks they graduate past this. I pray in my own life that I never graduate past this. Jesus, that I am guilty, you are innocent, and in you, you've turned a sinner into a saint. And so Jesus, you're active, you're living, you're in heaven on a throne right now. And so we're not gonna go into some moot time of worship to pretend like there's someone listening. There's an active king on a throne and we're going to sing to you tonight. We love you, Jesus. Amen.